Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Israel Podcast, the podcast that aims to make you the most informed person in your family dinner table about Israeli politics. I'm your host, Avishai Ben Sasson Goldis, and if you've been with us before, thank you for the wait and thank you for coming back. If you're new, welcome. Um, I'm, to tell you a bit about myself, an Israeli studying political theory at Harvard, and before I came here to study, I lived my entire life in Israel, had some background in foreign policy, security, working with politicians, and being probably like yourself, a political junkie all around. Um, this week's episode is going to be about Avi Gabay, the new leader of the Israeli Labor Party. And he's been elected in July, and ever since being elected, he's been raising a lot of controversy and conversation. And I hope that this podcast episode will allow you to get to know him a bit better, what he's trying to do, some of my thoughts about his positions and the things he's been saying since getting elected. And in preparation for this episode, I didn't just read a lot about him, which I did, of course, but I also spoke to some people who work for him and work on his campaign, people who've worked on the campaigns of his uh, opponents inside labor, and other labor activists who are interested in following what he's doing to give you as full an account of who he is as possible. Let's start with the basics. Avigabe was born in Jerusalem in 1964. That makes him 53 years old, fairly young for an Israeli politician. He was the seventh of eight children to parents who made Aliyah from Morocco three years earlier. His father worked for Bezek, the Israeli telecommunications company, which Gabay would come to manage several years down the line. After high school, he joined Unit A200, the famed Israeli intelligence unit, and studied economics at Hebrew University. And after graduating, he worked at the Treasury's elite budget unit, um, from which he retired in 1998 to join Bezek, that same firm his father worked for as a technician, and he rose to become its CEO over the course of the next few years. When he was CEO, right around the year 2007, um, he met then-Minister of Communications Moshe Kahlon, who is today the head of the Kulanu Centrist Party and the Minister of the Treasury himself. And the two worked together, got to know each other, learned to appreciate each other. And when Kahlon retired from the Likud to form his own party, he recruited Gabay to run his field operations. And after the elections, Gabay did not join the Knesset, but did join the government as a cabinet minister. The ministry he was handed was the Ministry of Environmental Protection, and in that position he famously opposed the multi-billion natural gas deal with the U.S. company Noble Energy against the position of Netanyahu, who pushed the deal very strongly through. He later resigned the government after El Ogazaria, a soldier posted in Hebron, shot an unarmed or disarmed uh, terrorist to death, and this caused a general stir in Israeli politics that led to the ouster of Defense Minister Yalon and his replacement with Avigdor Lieberman, the right-wing populist, and Gabay retired from the government protesting the resignation of uh, Yalon and his replacement with Lieberman. What he did next was pretty surprising for a person who grew up on the Israeli right. He joined labor, and soon after, when primaries for the leadership of the party were declared, he decided to join the race along with several other uh, contestants and won its runoff primary elections with a little over 52% of the vote. 
beating Amir Peretz, prominent past leader of uh, the party, in what was an upset victory. Since his victory, Gabay embarked on what his advisors call a political experiment. First of all, he's trying to um, reform the party machine. Second of all, he started from day one an election campaign that's focused on winning. Now, this might sound like a bit of an odd thing to say, aren't all political campaigns premised on the idea of winning? But for the Israeli left for the past few years, while conversation of winning was sometimes on the agenda, most of the time people were talking about fighting rear guard battles, um, making symbolic victories, etc., etc. So what Gabay's people have been focusing on is that they have this one shot to win an election, otherwise they won't get another chance, so they're going to try and do it in one go. And if you know anything about winning an election, there are really two ways of doing that. One is through turnout, getting your people to go to the vote and depressing the opposition's vote. And the other is getting people who would otherwise vote for the opposition to vote for you. So in this case, Gabay is definitely focused on the second sort of strategy. Instead of focusing on turning out more people on the left, he's trying to shake things up and bring out more people who would otherwise vote for the right. This means several things for him. The first and maybe most important thing that you hear about when you talk to his people is that they're trying to break up Netanyahu's identity politics. And what they mean by that is that Netanyahu, in their mind, has been very successful over the past decades um, in painting the left as secular, soft, interested in the uh, well-being of the enemy instead of the well-being of the Israeli people and placing human rights in, in front of um, the security and interests and the traditions of the Israeli people. And instead, what they're trying to do is paint a new picture of what it means to be on the left. So one part of it is Gabay himself, who didn't grow up in the traditional lefty background of this Tel Aviv elite, presumably, and has a lot of respect for tradition, speaks the language, uses um, Sephardi Israeli phrases, and other parts of it are talking to new crowds. So he's been campaigning a lot in the Israeli periphery, towns that voted Likud in the past. That's where he's been going to, to spill his message. Um, and the last thing is using different language. Instead of talking about tycoons, talking about stealing our money and the 1%, he's talking about corruption, hopefully appealing to other sort of ideas. Um, he's willing to put a kippah on his head while at the same time calling for public transportation on the Sabbath. So this is supposed to represent a new line in identity, in the identity of the Israeli left. His moves have led to several responses. A lot of what we've been seeing in labor circles is enthusiasm for this new kind of leadership and what he brings with him. You see a lot of people showing up for his rallies. On the other hand, you see a lot of, you can hear a lot of um, negative responses from people in the party, mostly around how loyal he is to the values of the left and what is he willing to compromise on, on his hope in his hope for victory. Um, and this comes from people who were suspicious of his left credentials when he was running, but also of people who were willing to give him a benefit of the doubt. And the reason is a series of statements he made about issues that are usually at the core of the left agenda, but sound different from what we've been used to hearing. So the first was and I'll focus only on a few in the benefit of brevity, 
The first one on the settlements, he said that he will not engage in forceful evacuation of settlers, which runs against the left orthodoxy that about 100,000 um, Israeli settlers in the territories will have to be evacuated from their homes in a peace agreement. That's about 20% of the Israelis living in the West Bank. Um, and he then later on congratulated Trump on his Jerusalem um, declaration and said that if he has to choose between Jerusalem without a peace deal or a peace deal without Jerusalem, he'd rather have Jerusalem united without a peace deal. Again, very against the, the left-wing orthodoxy on this. The second was a line from him that he will not invite the joint Arab list to join his coalition if he gets elected. And then he later on said something um, crit critiquing a member of the labor, an Arab member of labor for his uh, unwillingness to participate in a Knesset meeting marking 100 years for the Zionist Balfour Declaration, defining both the party and the actions of this member of Knesset as extreme positions. And the last thing he did was in a meeting with students, he echoed a line made by Netanyahu, famous line, uh, in the 1990s saying about the Israeli left that they forgot what it means to be Jewish. And this was taken as a real slight against his base. Now, his what you might call apologist supporters or people who just understand him better said that we shouldn't really take his statements at face value. The first is the settlements. He didn't rule out concessions, just said he won't give them up front and that he'd rather have people evacuated from their homes peacefully, not forcefully. Regarding the Arabs, yes, he critiqued their leadership, but it's not against the Arab populace. It's about what their leadership does and how it represents the people. And finally, about the Jewishness of the left, it was a prelude to embracing Jewish culture, but also to a very strong statement about the need to secularize public spaces. And it really wasn't an affirmation of what Bibi said, but more of a smart way of saying that the left needs to um, externalize its support for Jewish values and traditions. Other people have said that whether or not these were miserable quotes or correct quotes, they were strategically sound. Because if you think about it, if what Gaba is hoping to do is get voters from the right to move to the left, then he can afford to lose some of his base to parties that are on the left of him if he can grow the block instead of just cannibalizing the block itself. Finally, what you hear some people say, and these are sometimes people who are better aware of, of where the actual statements come from, is that some of these cases are just poor choice of words by a newcomer. And we should remember that this is not a guy who's ran for office for years on end and is very polished. So he might say things that are better worded elsewise, but we should be able to live with his positions because he's going to do the right things based on those uh, positions. Now, I got to say that my concern is somewhat different. And it stems from my worry about the political culture and discourse in Israel. So if some of you are familiar, you may have heard of a term called the Overton window. Vox recently did a nice video about it. I recommend you look for it. It's a term from political science, oddly a very useful one, that designates the window of what's accepted within public discourse. So there is a set of positions the public is willing to take as acceptable, and it's it can be moved. That's the Overton window, and can be moved or enlarged by people outside that window making and normalizing extreme statements. So if people, um, if white nationalists, for instance, say again and again, America first, or things about 
uh, international trade, it might become more of a legitimate part of the conversation in a way that it might not have necessarily been before, in the same way ideas about general health care, single-payer health care on the left. Now, politicians face a dilemma. They can try and expand the Overton window and say what's exactly on their mind and, and be ideologically committed, what Weber calls sometimes the ethics of conviction, or they can stick to what's acceptable, use that, and engage in what he calls ethics of responsibility and stand a better chance to be accepted by the public. Now, when the public discourse in Israel over the past few years has been moved to disavow some groups on the left and some critiques of the government, when politicians on the left engage of a politics of responsibility or talking within the Overton window, they run the risk of allowing the conversation to drift more and more to the right. And instead of legitimizing their supporters and their opinions, they're playing a game that plays into the hand of the other side. So when you try and avoid the politics of identity as espoused by Netanyahu or tacked onto the left by his people, you might just actually be enshrining those notions of what the left is and what it does instead of combating them. In simpler words, what I'm actually just saying is that I hope my leaders are sometimes leading and not just being dragged by and following public opinion as it currently stands. I think I'll stop here. This is enough for the day. Um, just to give you a few short memos of what we talked about today so you have a few takeaways. So there's a new and different kind of leader uh, from a different background to the Israeli labor who's bringing new and exciting ideas and trying to win the next election by engaging in a political experiment to challenge Netanyahu's identity politics, to reach new audience, and to reform a very old and ossified party um, mechanism. As he does that, he runs the risk of alienating his base. But hopefully for him and hopefully for people who support his platform, he might be able to reach beyond that base and grow out of this awkward adolescent electoral phase of his into a full-blown uh, political leader. Israel definitely needs more leadership figures on all sides, so that wouldn't be a bad thing altogether. Will it work? Good question. Since he got elected, Labor first rose in the polls. Now it seems like Yair Lapid is again gaining over it within the center-left. But we don't know when the election is going to be, so there's a lot to be seen. And we'll check in with it next time there's anything to add to this. Um, speaking of checking in, check in with me wherever you want. I'm on Facebook at The Israel Podcast, and there is a Medium page for the podcast where you can find all past episodes or simply on SoundCloud where this gets uploaded. Talk to me if you have any questions, if you want to know what the next episode is going to be about or ask it to be about a specific topic. Hit me up there. And also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Avishai with a Y BSG or on Facebook, just my full name on Facebook. Look for me there, Avishai Ben Sasson Gordis. See you in two weeks or so. Bye bye.